Good evening, friends. Welcome to Valley Writers Read, a program which features stories written by only San Joaquin Valley authors. And tonight we're presenting a particularly relevant story by Visalia author Mary Benton, which has to do with something that we here in the Valley do a lot of, pick grapes. The story is appropriately entitled The Grape Fields. And here is Gabriella Lawson to read it for us. The Grape Fields by Mary Benton. The Grape Fields. Mama placed the lunch basket in the front seat of the old 38 Plymouth and slid in beside it. Daddy revved the engine, causing it to sputter in the early morning air. As the youngest and only girl, I was sandwiched in the back seat between my two older brothers, Cyril and Dave. Picking buckets were wedged in among our legs. The muggy stillness of late August closed around me. It was going to be a hot day in California's San Joaquin Valley. We drove down the dirt drive of our small rural home with our family dog, Ginger, trotting alongside. As soon as we reached the paved road, Ginger stopped, gave us a dejected look, and turned back. I wished mightily I could have turned back with her. The drive into the small town of Yedham didn't take long. Tulalian's grocery store dominated the small settlement. Its unpainted board and bat siding was toasted brown with age and splintered from years of exposure to the valley's heat. Narrow windows on the second floor reflected the orange rays of the sun rising from behind the Sierra. If you kids work hard picking grapes today, we'll stop on our way home and get a cold soda pop, Daddy promised. My mouth watered at the thought of a tingly knee-high strawberry soda. Past the stores and the raisin-drying yards, six or seven faded clapboard houses lined the edge of the road. Constructed in the same design, their backyards bled into the dusty edges of a grape field. Several miles beyond the small town, Daddy turned off the road and crossed a large canal. The bottom was dry, the sand sculpted in wave-like designs by the summer runoff. He pulled under a clump of cottonwoods and parked alongside several other cars and small trucks. The man who owned the vineyard was talking to the workers as they arrived. Daddy informed him that we kids would be helping. The man grunted and gave Cyril and me a hard look. I sensed trouble. Make sure those kids don't get any sand into the trays. They know what they're doing, Daddy assured him. Following Mama and Daddy into the field, I could already feel the dampness on my forehead. A boy I knew from school was walking behind a group of grown-ups. He didn't look any happier than I was. His name was Melvin. He was quiet, wore torn and dirty clothes, and never looked directly at anyone. Daddy selected two rows and tacked his cards on the end posts. He and Mama started cutting the seedless Thompson grapes from the vines and filling their buckets. My older brother, Dave, who was 12, helped Mama on her row. Cyril and I picked up handfuls of the paper trays stacked at the end of the row. It would be my job to lay each sheet of the brown waxed paper on the ground in the avenue between the grape rows and then spread the grapes on it that Cyril dumped. Sounded simple, but for a nine-year-old, being careful wasn't something my parents pointed to with pride. Cyril was built like a red fire plug. It soon became a game to him. 
He would pile the grapes in a heap, then hurry back to get more so he could complain how slow I was. As the morning wore on, Cyril became bored, and my determination to keep ahead of him waned. Any enthusiasm I felt for the promised soda was lost in black beads of sweat. I looked up to see the owner of the field coming up the avenue behind us. When he drew even with Daddy, he spoke. Your kids are no good. They're getting sand into the trays. My heart started beating faster. Would Daddy yell at us? It was my shoe's fault, I decided. They were my cousin's hand-me-downs and at least three sizes too large. Daddy walked over to us. I could see his face was set. No one called us kids no good. He reserved that right for himself. Try to be a little more careful, Spud, he said to me. My name is Patricia, but Daddy always called me Spud. It's the shoes, Daddy, I said quietly. I'll take them off. Well, see what you can do. He spoke more harshly to Cyril. I suppose since Cyril was ten, Daddy thought he should do better. It wasn't long before I was hopping like a sand flea on hot bricks as I laid the trays down and straightened the grapes to an even depth. In my haste to seek relief in the shade of the vines for my scorched feet, I kicked even more sand onto the trays. At last, noon arrived and we walked back to the trees in our waiting lunch. When we reached the car, I saw Daddy talking to the owner. When Daddy came up to the car, he spoke to Mama. Mr. Yanian said Cyril and Spud can't help anymore. They'll have to stay at the car for the rest of the day. Mama rubbed her sweat-streaked face with a bandana. Dave can take over laying the trays. It'll be okay. Mama handed me a spam and mustard sandwich. I bit into the fatty boiled meat and reflected on this bit of news. To sit in the shade of the trees for the rest of the day was all right by me. When everyone returned to the field after lunch, I noticed that Melvin was also sidelined. He sat quietly on the running board of a rusty Dodge coupe, flipping through a Felix the Cat comic book. For the next hour, I drew pictures in the dirt with a stick, while Cyril banged rusty nails into the end of a broken lug box with a rock. Bored with drawing pictures, I looked around for Melvin but didn't see him. I hadn't noticed him leaving and wondered if he took the comic book with him. I remembered the canal bed. It would provide a fresh place to play. Walking the short distance, I pushed through the weeds along its bank and looked downward. I was startled to see an older man and a young boy standing in the bottom next to a willow bush. The boy was Melvin. His arms hung limply at his sides, his face glistening with tears. The man laughed, said something I couldn't hear, and then placed his hand on Melvin's privates. I covered my mouth and crouched lower in the weeds. Had Melvin hurt himself? Was that man his father? I must have made a noise because the man whirled around and looked up, his face twisted in anger. He pushed Melvin away and turned to climb the steep bank toward me. Panic shot through me and I ran. I didn't stop until I reached the safety of the car. What's wrong? Cyril asked. Someone see you taking a whiz? For a moment I was tongue-tied. I didn't know how to tell Cyril what I'd seen. There was a man in the bottom of the canal, I said, trying to catch my breath. I think he was hurting Melvin. He saw me and started chasing me. I don't see anyone chasing you. How do you mean hurting? Was he hitting him? No, he was, you know, sort of touching Melvin's privates. Oh, you're so full of baloney. Go see for yourself, I asserted. Cyril rose to his feet and picked up a thick piece of limb. He walked toward the canal bank. At school, Cyril would start a fistfight at the slightest insult. He was tough, and he wasn't afraid of anything. Make the man leave him alone, I hollered after him. It seemed forever before I saw Cyril returning. 
I hunkered in the back seat of the car, clutching my knees to my chest. Cyril peered in the window at me. There wasn't anyone there. Are you sure you're not making this up? Cross my heart and hope to die, I said, shaking my head and making crisscross signs over my chest. I saw them. I think you're lying. Cyril tossed the club aside and returned to his imaginary world of cars and trucks. My heart was still hula dancing in my chest as I peered nervously at the cars and pickups parked around us. Questions swirled in my head. Should I go to the vineyard and see if Melvin had returned to the field? Should I tell Daddy? If I did tell, I'd probably get yelled at for wandering away from the car. It might be best not to set Daddy off. He was mad enough that Cyril and I messed up and caused the rest of the family to work harder. When it was quitting time, I was more than ready to go home. I glanced anxiously over to the car Melvin had been sitting on. I didn't see him, but a man and lady were standing by the car talking. I didn't recognize the man as the one I saw in the canal. The thought that a stranger was doing those things to Melvin made my shoulders crawl up around my neck. I felt a poke in my ribs and yelped. Get in the car, Dave growled. I'm tired. On the way home, we sailed right on by to Lalian's. No stops for cold sodas. Daddy pushed his hat back and turned to Mama. We don't need to come back to this job. Without Cyril and Spud's help, we can't make enough. I'll come back in the morning and collect our pay. A deep guilt settled into the pit of my stomach. It was my fault that Daddy was going to quit. I felt sorry for Dave. He deserved a soda. The next morning, Daddy took off early to pick up the money for our previous day's work. He told Mama he would be back shortly and take her into town to buy groceries. It was late afternoon before Daddy returned. Dave was sitting on the porch reading. Cyril and I were under the chinaberry tree, building a miniature town out of mud. When Daddy got out of the car, his hat was cocked at an angle. That meant most of the pay had already been spent on drink. Silently, Dave stepped from the porch and headed for the barn. When Daddy drank, he and Mama quarreled. I also decided to abandon the mud town and move to the other side of the house. Only Cyril stayed. On the far side of the house, I sat on the ground under the kitchen window. Ginger had followed and flopped down next to me. It was cool there, and I could hear Mama and Daddy talking. Mama's voice had already risen. How much did you spend on liquor? Not much. If you're ready, I'll take you to the store. I'm not going if I have to ask for credit. If you can't save enough money back to buy groceries, what good is it to have the children help? Shoot, woman, you should be grateful that I quit. That's why I had to have a drink. I couldn't stomach what happened out there. Why? What happened? Some kid's missing. I guess the parents aren't worth killing, but they're yelling that somebody kidnapped him. I quit drawing my pictures in the dirt and stood, leaning close to the wall. My heart was clattering so loud, I had to strain my eardrums to hear. When did he go missing? Mama asked. Heck if I know. I think yesterday. They claim they left him up by the cars at noon, and when they came in, he was gone. That sorry excuse of a sheriff asked if I knew anything about it. Did you ask the kids if they saw anything? Panic sent a shiver down my spine. Nah, the only two that have any sense scattered like wild turkeys when I drove up. While I get ready, ask Spud if she saw a little boy up by the cars. I slid down the wall, wishing I'd told Daddy about what I'd seen. I searched my options. I could lie and say I didn't see anything, or I could circle back around the front of the house and hope Cyril ended up with half the blame. I'd just made it back to the chinaberry tree when Daddy stumbled down the front stoop. Hey, you two, Daddy said, his voice serious. Did either of you see a little boy up by the cars yesterday afternoon? 
Cyril frowned at me and then flung mud from his fingers as he shifted his attention to Daddy. There was some kid Spud knew. I think his name was Melvin. Spud claimed she saw him down in the canal with some guy who was hurting him. When I went to check it out, there wasn't anyone there. I think she made the whole thing up. Daddy hitched his britches up and staggered a few steps closer to me. You what? I chanced a quick look at him. His face was white. I was in big trouble. Daddy whirled sharply toward the house. Helen! He took a step, then turned back and grabbed my arm. You're going to tell your mama exactly what you saw and why you were at the canal in the first place. I had to scramble to keep up with Daddy as he climbed the steps. Never saw Daddy sober up so fast. Mama's face was creased in annoyance as she gathered her purse under her arm. I'm ready, she said. You don't have to yell. Daddy shoved me toward Mama. You listen to what your daughter has to tell you. I don't want to hear it. You can tell me later. I don't have a lot of time, Spud. Did you or didn't you see a little boy up by the cars yesterday? I nodded, thinking how I would tell Mama without getting myself into more trouble. I needed to go to the toilet, I began, and then related what I had seen and how the man started chasing me. Why on earth didn't you come to the field and tell us? Because Cyril didn't believe me, and I figured you wouldn't either. But now a little boy is missing. For all we know, he could be dead. Melvin dead? And it was my fault. Mama clutched her purse to her bosom. Your daddy and I have to go after groceries. You stay in the house until we get back. Are you going to tell someone about what I saw? We have to. Are you sure the man wasn't someone you recognized from the field? I shook my head. Not that I can remember. If your daddy and I go to the sheriff with this, I don't want us to look like fools and that our daughter is prone to tell in stories. It was close to sundown when Mama and Daddy came back. A police car was following them. My hands were clammy and I nearly suffocated myself from barely breathing. The officer was huge. With the quietness of a barn cat, he entered the house and removed his hat. Mama offered him a chair, and after sitting, he took a notepad from his shirt pocket and settled it against one knee. I'm Deputy Rains, Patricia. I need to ask you a few questions. I inched toward him and repeated my story, making sure I didn't add anything. The officer's mouth twitched as he scribbled notes. Can you describe the man to me? Like how tall he was, or if he was fat or skinny? I don't know how tall he was, because I was looking down at him. He seemed to have a round face and round eyes. That's all I remember. The officer kept asking me questions, and I kept wagging my head back and forth. I wasn't helping at all. The deputy stood and smiled. Thanks, Patricia. You've been a big help. He nodded at Mama, then turned and walked outside. I let out a big sigh of relief. At least he didn't say it was my fault that Melvin was missing maybe even dead. The next morning, Daddy, Mama, and Dave left to go to another job. Cyril and I stayed home. Before they left, Mama instructed us that if we had a problem, we were to go to our nearest neighbors, the Polsons, and ask for help. After I finished with my chores, I went to my favorite place to play under the chinaberry tree in the front yard. Cyril was still watering the garden when a green, frog-nosed pickup drove down the road in front of our house. Something about the truck looked familiar. I watched as it turned the corner and sped westward. I could still see the truck in the distance as it turned northward along a dirt road that ran along an open field that lay behind our pasture. The field was dry, native land, filled with hog wallows and gray scabs of alkali. An abandoned house lay crumbling among some eucalyptus trees in the middle of the field. 
the truck disappeared behind the trees. I ran to the garden where Cyril was. Do you remember a green pickup at the grape fields yesterday? I asked. Cyril threw a siphon pipe down and glared at me. Why? I saw one going down the road. I think I remember seeing it. So there's lots of green trucks around. Disgusted with Cyril's response, I headed to the barn and climbed up on the hay bales. From my vantage point, I could see the vacant field and the old house in the distance. Ginger hopped up next to me. She gazed at the open field and whined, giving me an anxious look. Did she know something, or did she just want to chase squirrels? Before long, the truck drove out from behind the trees and continued down the road. Could the truck have anything to do with Melvin's disappearance? I looked at Ginger. If Melvin was back there, Ginger could find him. I jumped from the haystack. Come on, Ginger, let's go hunting. Ginger rambled ahead of me through the field as tarweed choked my nose and clumps of salt grass shattered and covered my legs in a fine gray dust. Blue jays screeched as I approached the stand of trees, and two buzzards lifted from their perches, sailing silently away. The old house looked even scarier than I remembered, and I hesitated, staring at the glassless windows. A low growl from Ginger caught my attention. She stood frozen, the hair on her back standing up. What you got, girl? I whispered. Ginger took a step back, her head darting back and forth. I heard it then, a faint mewing sound. It sounded like a kitten was lost under the house. I bent down to look underneath. It was too murky to see anything. The sound came again, and Ginger growled once more. I glanced at her and saw she was trembling. Rocking back on my heels, my mind did a little stutter. A cellar was located in that corner. I patted my leg, encouraging Ginger to climb the steps with me. She hesitated a moment, then shot for home like a rifle bullet. Panic set in, and I jumped from the porch and ran after her. Before clearing the trees, I stopped and turned back. I couldn't leave without looking in the cellar. The cellar door was located in a small area just off the kitchen. I craned my neck into the open doorway. Leaves swept in by the wind lay in scattered heaps. Large holes gaped in the ceiling where rotting timbers dangled. A few pieces of broken furniture were still evident as I inched my way across the floor. A sound came from beneath me, almost a moan. My feet shuffled backward. Hello? Anyone down there? I called. My scalp prickled as a soft wind rustled through the old house, sending brittle leaves slithering across the floor. Before my courage failed me, I moved to the trap door and with both hands yanked it open. I hopped back, half expecting a wild animal to come charging out. The only thing that came out was a sickly sweet smell. I edged closer and peered down into the darkness that shrouded the interior. I could barely see all the corners of the box like space. A slight movement caught my eye. In the dim light, the outline of a small person took shape. Taking a deep breath, I made my way down the narrow ladder. My skin crawled at the thought of what I might discover. A gap in the ceiling boards allowed a sliver of light to fall on the prone figure, and I immediately recognized Melvin. He lay on his side, his face smeared with dirt, a torn and twisted t shirt wrapped around his upper body. His hands were clasped between bony knees, his torn shorts a patch of whiteness in the sparse light. Leaning in closer, I saw that his hands and feet were bound with rope. My stomach lurched, and a bitter taste filled my mouth as I knelt and pulled at the ropes. Melvin stirred and moaned. Wake up, Melvin, I said. You've got to get out of here. My fingers fumbled at the knot. 
In desperation, I looked around for something to pry with. A movement at the top of the ladder caused me to freeze. A shadow loomed over the opening, and then a voice spoke. "'What do you think you're doing?' Cyril sounded annoyed. "'And what is that smell?' Relief washed over me. "'It's Melvin!' I gasped. "'He's down here, and he's messed all over himself. I think he's hurt real bad.' Cyril didn't question me. He clattered down the ladder, and walking over to Melvin, he gave a little shudder. "'Criminy, he stinks!' "'Can you get his hands untied?' I asked. Cyril dug into his pocket and pulled out his jackknife. It didn't take long for him to have the ropes cut. "'Help me get him to the ladder,' he said. "'I think I can carry him up.' I scrambled to get hold of Melvin. Something blocked the light coming from the cellar door, and I glanced up. A round face filled the opening. I let out a sharp screech, and the face disappeared. The door of the cellar slammed shut. Dust and grit rained down. Cyril and I stared at the ceiling as the sound of something heavy scraped across the floor. A thud against the cellar door made me cringe. Cyril sprang into action. No one's locking me in. Arms and legs churned as he pulled himself up the ladder. He shoved his shoulder against the trap door, but it didn't budge. He jumped from the ladder, his eyes wild. Your knife, I whispered. There's a hole in the ceiling over in the corner. I think you might be able to chip away enough wood so we can get out. Cyril nodded. Yeah, that might work. Grabbing the ladder, he propped it against the wall next to the small opening and climbed up. I hugged my elbows and glanced at Melvin. He hadn't moved. Shuffling in a small circle, I searched for other openings while Cyril jabbed at the heavy planks. That's when I spotted the missing bricks at the top of one wall. They were hard to see because the dark opening led to the space underneath the back porch. A popping noise came from above. My hair fairly rose off my head as the smell of smoke drifted through the cracks in the ceiling. Cyril smelled it at the same time. "'He's gonna burn us alive!' he yelled. There wasn't time to explain to Cyril about the bricks. "'Get down!' I said, shaking the ladder. Cyril lost his grip and fell to the ground. Moving the ladder to the hole, I skimmed up the rungs. My hands dug into the soft dirt that was spilling from the opening. It would be a tight squeeze, but I was sure that both of us could fit through." I turned and looked for Cyril. A layer of smoke hung next to the ceiling, and I could barely make out Cyril's form dragging Melvin toward the ladder. "'What are you doing?' I choked, smoke stinging my eyes. "'We can't just leave him here,' Cyril wheezed. "'You crawl on through, and I'll carry him up. Grab his arms and pull while I push.' I wasn't about to argue that Melvin was probably already dead, and we were going to die, too, if we didn't get out. I thrust my head through the opening and wiggled my way into the space under the porch. A red-hot heat pressed against my back as I squirmed around to look down. Cyril had already climbed the ladder. Melvin slumped over his shoulder. Leaning into the cellar, I grabbed one of Melvin's arms and pulled, gaining leverage with my foot against the wall. Cyril grunted, "'Keep pulling!' Melvin was wedged in the opening. I crawled out from under the stoop and, turning, grabbed Melvin's limp hand. Digging my heels in, I tugged with all my might. The heat from the flames beat against my face, and I was afraid to breathe." Hands suddenly grabbed me around my shoulders, yanking me backward. No! I screamed. A voice spoke with authority. Get back! We've got him! Crouching on my hands and knees, I saw a man pick Melvin up and carry him away. I crawled toward the porch, looking for Cyril. Then I saw him. He was on his stomach, worming his way out from under the porch. I could barely see him as he stood and ran, flames flickering from his hair and shirt. Strong arms curled around my waist, lifting me up. I started kicking. 
Stop it, little girl. I'm trying to help you. We were clear of the smoke and heat when I realized the man carrying me was a policeman. He set me down and looked at me closely. Are you all right? My eyes stung and I couldn't see very well, but I nodded. I heard sirens blaring and squinted to make out a fire truck pulling up to the burning remains of the old house. Our neighbor, Mrs. Polson, walked up and placed an arm around my shoulders. You'd best come with me, Patricia. What about Cyril? Where is he? They've taken him and the little boy you both saved to the hospital. I walked with Mrs. Polson across the field to their house. How did the police know to come? I asked her. Your little dog, Ginger, came to our back porch, whining. My husband went out to have a look and saw the green truck parked on the old road and the smoke. He told me to call the police and the fire department. What about the round-faced man? Did the police catch him? Yes, I believe they did. I was all scrubbed and clean when Mama and Daddy picked me up. They'd been in to see Cyril at the hospital and told me he would have to stay for several more days, but he would be all right. As soon as I was settled into the back seat, Mama took a deep breath. Cyril told us what happened. He said you disappeared from the yard and he figured you went to explore the old house. Mama turned around and glared at me. Do you know how close you came to getting Cyril killed? If I wasn't so relieved that you're both alive, I'd give you a good whipping. I ducked my head and pulled at the knots in my singed hair. How is Melvin? Mama rubbed her forehead. There were newspaper reporters all over that hospital. They're calling Cyril a hero for saving him. As far as I'm concerned, that boy's life wasn't worth almost losing the two of you. The bit of news about Cyril being a hero caught in my craw. After all, I was the one who found Melvin. He's going to live, though, isn't he? I asked. Mama's shoulders sank back against the seat. Yes, they think so. And the man, who was he? A so-called friend of the kid's family, Daddy put in. I talked with Melvin's father at the hospital. He told me the man and his wife had been picking grapes a few rows over from them. Melvin's father said he hadn't actually noticed when the man left or when he came back because the fellow was prone to find an excuse to go somewhere and leave his wife in the field working. The sick fool hid Melvin in the cellar to torture him. I think he intended to burn the house all along, figuring the kid's remains would never be found. Daddy coughed out a dry laugh. Imagine his surprise when he found you two idiots down in the cellar with Melvin. I leaned forward. Why would the man want to hurt Melvin? Daddy was quiet a moment, and I could tell he was searching for the right words. Spud, there are some men who like to hurt little boys. Little girls, too, for that matter. I can't understand why any more than you can. But these lunatics don't have any feelings of pity for the children they hurt, and they're not sorry for what they've done. The cruelty of the act is what excites them, and so they tell themselves that this makes it all okay. Mama whirled her head toward me. And that's why, young lady, you need to mind when you're told to stay in the yard. I sank back against the seat. How could someone take pleasure in hurting children? I thought of Cyril lying in the hospital. Guilt pinched at my throat. In my mad scramble to escape, any thoughts of saving Melvin had flown out of my head. As we drove down our drive, Ginger bounded out to greet us. Dave had all the lights on in the house, and it looked warm and inviting. I came to one conclusion. Cyril deserved to be treated like a hero.
That was Gabriella Lawson reading The Grape Fields by Mary Benton. She takes us back to a grape harvest probably sometime around World War II. The whole family is involved. Mom, Dad, and three kids, Cyril, Dave, and Patricia, who's the one telling the story? They go picking grapes, and Patricia inadvertently notices a man abusing a young boy named Melvin. Melvin turns up missing, and as we heard, it's Patricia and Cyril and their dog Ginger that find Melvin in a nearby deserted house. They nearly lose their lives because the kidnapper sees them and tries to burn all three children by setting the house on fire. The story ends as Patricia comes to the conclusion that her brother Cyril deserves to be treated like a hero. Well, we think that's kind of debatable because, after all, it was Patricia who had the courage and persistence to search for and actually find Melvin. She surely deserves to be the heroine of this story. Friends, Mary Benton resides in Visalia. The story we heard tonight was an honorable mention at the Central Valley Writers' Conference in Oakhurst in April of last year. Mary tells us that although tonight's story is fiction, the setting is real. It sounds like maybe she clearly remembers what it was like to go picking grapes. Mary is the author of two novels, Dulcie and Winds of Time. We want to thank her for that wonderful story tonight, and of course hope she'll share more of her writing with us in seasons to come. And so we come to the end of another edition of Valley Writers Read. Thank you for listening. If you would like to listen to tonight's or any other Valley Writers Read story again, just go online to kvpr.org and link up with archived audio. Next week, our writer-reader will be David Borovka. In the meantime, this is your host, Franz Weinschenk, wishing you and yours a great life story until we meet again. Good night. Valley Writers Read is a production of Valley Public Radio produced by Don Weaver and Franz Weinschenk. Please join us again next Wednesday at 7 p.m. for another edition of Valley Writers Read.